If you have a copy of God's Word, would you uh, open it up to Genesis chapter 2? And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, Larry's standing in the back ready to bring you a Bible so that you can see these words in front of you this morning as I read them. Genesis 2, 1 through 3 is where we'll be. Genesis 2, 1 through, through 3. Once the commotion subsides, we'll read this together. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Last week, as we were in Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 31, we wondered together at a God who created everyone and and everything with one simple word. And out of nothingness, God brought somethingness, and then he ordered it all perfectly. From top to bottom, the sky, the land, the sea, the sun, the moon, the stars, and eagles, and puffins, and cod, and cows, and lions, elk, salamander, you name it. It came out of nothing, and God spoke it into existence, and that includes us, mankind. If you braved the cold this week and took a walk, which I'm sure you didn't, because why would you? You're not crazy. Many of you observed something remarkable in, in nature. Maybe you just Googled it. That would be acceptable as well. Jonathan Edwards mentioned him a couple weeks back. He's probably America's greatest theologian. Jonathan Edwards said something or, or had, a, had a, 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 a very strange affinity. He was a great theologian and so much of his work is so important for us in the church today. But Edwards experienced wonder by observing his favorite thing in creation, the spider. And I don't know if you like spiders, or maybe you have an affinity for them, maybe you've spent time observing them like Edwards, or maybe you're an arachnophobe, but the reality is that when Edwards looked at the spider, he saw something that was phenomenal. Edwards wrote in his notes, published as the Spider Letter, which some people said he might have written when he was 20, but other people said maybe as early as 12 years old. Of all the insects, no one is, no one is more wonderful than a spider, especially with respect to their sagacity, admirable way of working. It's an interesting thing to say about spiders, maybe. Maybe you squish one. But Edwards marveled at how spiders would make webs and seem to fly through the air in in his New England home. But as an incredible wonder, God made it all and he ordered it all. And that's really difficult for us to get our heads around. And perhaps this morning, as our heads are pretty cold, it wouldn't seem like something that is possible. And I would submit that it is impossible to get our heads around. But we left our, our, our time last week hoping to be a bit more enraptured by the things that God does. A God who spoke everything into existence. Something wasn't there and then it came into existence through a simple word. 
As we thought about that yesterday too, though, we knew or thought a little bit, uh, not yesterday, but last week, we thought a little bit about God's Word as well, the Bible. Because this is how it gets better. Scripture provides us with specific information about who He is. The Bible was without error. The Bible is infallible. The creation account in Genesis chapter 1, as we see it before us this morning, shows us a God who orders everything perfectly. Every atom and black hole. Every dolphin. And that gives us the confidence that God will not fail to order what He has communicated specifically to us through His Word. And to deny that Scripture is infallible, or to deny that Scripture is inerrant, is to deny that God's purposes are fulfilled in creating everyone and everything. So these two ideas go hand in hand with us, or or for us this morning. If they did not, we would be claiming inconsistency in God. Numbers 23.19 reads, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? And then the first half of Malachi 3.6, God says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Both God's words in creating everything and the Bible that we hold in front of us this morning find their ground in God's unchanging character. A God who speaks everyone and everything into existence and speaks clearly to us in His Word. But the reality is, as God does these things, speaks everything into existence, and then gives us His inerrant, infallible Word, the next few verses, the verses that we're exploring this morning, God does something even more radical, it would seem. He rests. On the seventh day, when his work was complete, God rested. All of that activity in days one through six, it's all finished. It's all finished. And God made the seventh day holy. He set it apart and he rested. Now, why would God rest? Isn't he all powerful? Why does he need this? What is this about? Didn't he just bring everything into existence through a word? Genesis 2, 1 through 3 is jarring. It's jarring. Because a God who can do this, why would, why would he need to? Why would he need to rest? Did God get tired? Did God get tired? There are two key elements in this In this text this morning, these three verses that will help us understand why God rests here on the seventh day. The two elements are this. First, the number seven. And then the second one is the nature of rest. So we'll take those in turn and consider each of them as we look together at the text. So I hope again that you have it in front of you. 
But first, we'll look at the number seven. And this appears three times in your text this morning as the seventh day. There's something important about the seventh day. But before we get to the number seven, you'll see something interesting. At the beginning of each day, if we go back to chapter one, at the beginning of each day of creation, days one through six, there's an introduction simply marked by, and God said. So in verse three and verse six and verse nine, 14, 20, and 24, each of these verses represents a new day in creation, something that God is doing that's new or different from the previous day. And then also on the sixth day, when God creates man, in verse 26 of chapter 1, it says, and God said, or then God said, your Bible might translate it, then God said, initiating a special act of creation, the creation of mankind, although no new day is initiated. So six times initiating six days and then initiating a special act of creation in creating man in his image, God says, or we see in the text, and God says. But when we get to this text in chapter 2, we should see chapter 2, 1 through 3 as a continuation of chapter 1. We see no, no similar introduction. God's creative word is not invoked here. So we have to ask the question, why? Why is day 7 different? What looks different here that Moses would write this or record it differently than the previous six days? It has to do with that number 7, the seventh day language that we see here in these three verses. Repeated three times, we see it twice in verse 2, and then once in verse 3. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The text actually is structured uh, this way, giving us a highlight of this phrase, the seventh day. And it may not come through the way that our Bibles look, but literally translated, it might look like this. And I think it'll be on the screen. Yeah, that right there. So next slide. No, that slide. Perfect. You see right down the middle of that in those first three lines in that translation, so God finished by the seventh day his work, which he did, And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he did. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because on it he rested from all his work which God created to do. So seventh day shows up in the middle of lines one through three and it does that three times. So that's purposeful for us. If you want to be a better Bible reader, which you do, I know that you do. I want to be a better Bible reader. Take repetition in a passage like this, and explore it. We're meant to see that this was not like the other days. All of the other days, one through six, only get one mention of what day it is, in the conclusion even. Days one through six, it says, and there was morning and there was evening, or there was evening and there was morning, the first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, and sixth day, but on the seventh day, that's not the case. So these three mentions of the seventh day screams that this is important. So we have to ask the question, why is it important? Why do we care? Why do we care about the seventh day here? 
Or maybe it's better to ask the question, this is probably the better question to ask, what's the significance of the number seven and why does it get repeated three times in Genesis 2, 1 through 3? In the original language, in Hebrew, the seven, the word for seventh is associated very closely with completion or fullness. Completion or fullness. And so whenever you run into the number seven, alarms should go off for you. The seventh day is special because it indicates that God is finished with His work. God doesn't just hit the weekend here. That's not what this is about. It's not just... Thank God it's Friday. He didn't stumble into the office from nine to five, six days a week, out of the week, and then clocked in and out and then hit Sunday. And he said, thank God it's Friday, or thank me it's Friday. Verse 1 says that the heavens and the earth were finished. Verse 2 says that God finished His work. There was nothing left to create. There was nothing left to order. There was nothing left to speak into existence. All that God intended to accomplish was accomplished here. Everything that he set out to do is finished. It's final. The interesting part about this text is that there is something that we share and something that we don't with God and what's described here. We don't experience this in the way that God did in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. You may know the phrase, the be-all, end-all, right? Or someone might say, if you make a really good pot pie, this is the pot pie to end all pot pies. I don't know if you like pot pies. It doesn't matter. It's just an example. It's a hyperbolic way of saying, this is really good. This tastes really good. And I really enjoy it, this pot pie. But the reality is, even if we say this is the pot pie to end all pot pies, someone else will in fact make another pot pie, and it will probably be better at some point than the pot pie that you just made. A huge number of pot pies will be made probably even today, probably before this sermon is even over. I don't know how quickly pot pies are made, but you get the picture. Somewhere on the East Coast, people are making pot pies. I think the heart of this statement, though, the be-all, end-all, or this is the X to end all X's, I think the heart of that statement is to communicate that there is no more work to be done, there are no more pot pies to be made because this one is, is perfect. So we don't experience anything like God does in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. You didn't finish your work last week. You may have finished a task at the end of the week, or you may have had a goal that you had at the end of the week, but you didn't finish it the way that God finished here. There's more to do. There's always another spreadsheet, more snow to shovel, more spreadsheets, more loads of laundry. And the seventh day doesn't end. Right here in, in, in Genesis 2, 1 through 3, the seventh day doesn't end. How does a day not end? Well, again, that conclusion for every day in days 1 through 6, again, if you look in chapter 1, and there was evening and there was morning the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, and the fifth day and the sixth day. But there's no such conclusion at the end of our text here. 
Just simply, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So the seventh day doesn't have that language at the end that draws a conclusion to it. We ask the question, well, why not? Why doesn't it follow that pattern? And the answer is because the idea of completeness, the idea of fullness, is achieved on the seventh day. No more days are needed to accomplish what God set out and intended to accomplish. No more days are needed. Therefore, we're meant to see that God's rest isn't just a one-day occurrence, but an ongoing reality brought about by God's perfect and finished work. We are meant to see, I'm going to say it again, we are meant to see that God's rest isn't just one-day occurrence, but an ongoing reality brought about by God's perfect and finished work. As the history of Israel progresses, and as we read about Israel throughout the Old Testament, we see in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, comes right after Genesis, we find the language here about the seventh day is displaced with a word that you probably have heard. That word is Sabbath. And ancient Israel observed the Sabbath weekly. And the Sabbath was the primary marker of God's covenant with Israel. The Ten Commandments, you know them, recorded in Exodus 20. In the Ten Commandments, the fourth commandment, the language ties the commandment right back into the seventh day of creation. It's Exodus 28 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and you shall and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You see the basis and the foundation for the fourth commandment found right here in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. And then later in the book of Exodus, in chapter 31, God tells Moses to say to the people, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Again, the purpose of the Sabbath, as we see here in Exodus 31, is as a sign between God and His people so that they may know that it is God who sets them apart. Therefore, for ancient Israel, the seventh day of the week represents a time to rest from work and to reflect on God's covenant with, together, with His people. God's covenant with Israel is that He is their God and they are His people. That's God's covenant with the nation of Israel. If they keep His commands, the contents of the Ten Commandments God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai, then the covenant remains intact. Now, we're going to go back to the Sabbath in a moment. We're going to go back and hit on those implications in a minute. But before we get there, I want to consider that second thing, the nature of rest. 
the second point this morning, the second element that we see contained in this text that is important for us. I think that Genesis 2, 1 through 3, should radically redefine rest for us. What do we think about rest and how do we process it? My personal definition of rest is sitting down on the couch, getting a good night's sleep, something like that. I have to admit to you, I'm tired a lot. I have five small children who are very loud almost all of the time without stopping. My weeks are full and I keep some strange hours. And I would like some rest, or I would like my definition of rest. Sitting down on the couch, getting a good night's sleep. But like I said, my definition there, and if your definition is any, what, any, any similar to mine, this passage should radically redefine rest for us. Rest isn't crashing on the couch or getting a good night's sleep. Rest is, isn't just pausing or pressing pause on our activity in order to recharge the batteries. Or at least it's not less than that, but it's definitely more than all of those things. It's definitely more than all of those things. Rest is, and here's the redefinition or what I see here in Scripture, rest is the absolute completion and cessation of activity or labor. We see that here with God in Genesis 2. The heavens and the earth are completed. There is nothing left to do. Nothing is out of place. Nothing needs correcting or adjusting. The labor, the work, the activity, it was final and it was complete. Consider again that literal translation that I put up on the screen a moment ago. So God finished by the seventh day His work, which He did, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work, which He did, and God blessed the seventh day and He sanctified it, because on it He rested from all His work, which God created to do. So we see the verbs, the verbs are finish and rested always referring to his work, finished his work, rested from his work, rested from his work. And lines 1, 2, and 3 show us seventh-day Sabbath principle. Line 1 heavily emphasizes that God finished by the seventh day. 2 and 4 tell us what the result is. The seventh-day completion of the activity of labor results in rest. It results in rest. And so rest is an absolute completion and cessation of activity or labor. Again, this is not something that you and I share in because there is always more work to do. We can press pause on our work like we did for the weekend, but we will never actually find rest in the way that God rests here in Genesis 2, 1, through three, at least not in ourselves. So let me move this towards a conclusion. And let me say what I just said again, because this is important. We never actually find rest in the way that God rests here in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. But here's the really big and helpful but for us. God invites us to participate in His rest. God invites us 
to participate in His rest. So, no matter the fact, no matter the reality that you will not ever be finished entirely with your work, God does finish entirely with His work and invites you to participate in His rest. Think, think with me about physics. Maybe. Newton's first law of motion. That law states, an object at rest stays at rest and an object in motion stays in motion with the same speed and in the same direction unless acted upon by an unbalanced force. This is, a, this is a law because it proves true in nature all of the time. Every time it's tested with no variation. So maybe you learned about this in high school or college. Fine. But Newton's first law of motion, what I would argue is that it finds its grounding in God's goodness. It finds its grounding in God's goodness. Because on the seventh day, God rested from His work because it was finished. Everything he created, he calls good in verse 31 of chapter 1. And so he rests. Because creation itself is found in a state of completion and perfection, rest is possible. So here's why I'm asking you to think about physics and Sir Isaac Newton. We need the force of God's completed work to bring us to rest. You're a busy person. I know it. You're a 21st century American. You've got a million things going on. You know it's the reality. God's completed work in creation, as demonstrated here in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, is God demonstrating his goodness through extending his rest to you and me. So, what does this mean practically? And you're like, what are you talking about? That's, you're insane. Isaac Newton in physics. We'll just leave it. Let's talk about the practicality of this, this text. God is extending his rest to you and me. So here are a handful of things. I'm going to give you three things this morning that this passage leads us to, us to practically. The first thing is this. Participate in lesser rest. Again, because you're a 21st century American, you're probably running pretty hard. Your career is demanding. Your kids' sports schedules are all-consuming. Your house needs to be cleaned. The laundry needs to be done. Your vehicle needs to be maintenanced. Your taxes need to get done. you got to take the dog to the vet. All of those things would probably hit on one of those things for you. And I think one of the hardest things for us to do is to slow down. But I think you need to know this. Rest and laziness are not the same thing. No matter what society tells you, you've probably mixed them up because society has probably told you that they're the same thing. They're not the same thing. Rest is not a sign of weakness. It's not a sign of laziness. Laziness, in biblical terms, laziness is a, a, a term that the Proverbs use very regularly. Laziness is ignoring one's duty to work or to provide for one's family or follow through on commitments made. Rest, I said participate in lesser rest. Lesser rest, here's I'm going to give you the definition. It's an acknowledgement of creatureliness. It's an acknowledgement of 
creatureliness. Sometimes you need to stop and say, this is the antidote to your busy 21st century American life. The antidote to it is, I'm not God. I'm not God. It's a healthy thing to say. God tells us in Psalm 46.10 to be still and know that I am God. It's an acknowledgement of our creatureliness. Because if he's God, then we're not. He doesn't say, now be still and empty your head and binge watch Netflix show or mindly scroll through Facebook. The command to know that he is God is not passive. And oftentimes our definition of rest is something that's very, very passive. It's the absence of doing things. But rest is more than that. It's an acknowledgement that you are a creature and that God is the creator. To push through or to bear down when you get tired is to claim to ultimately be God. But to be still is to say, I'm a creature and He is the Creator. How do we know God? How do we know that He is God? The answer is through His Word. Maybe you didn't spend a whole lot of time in your Bible this week, or maybe you fell down on the Bible reading plan already for 2020. And you're feeling kind of guilty right now, thinking I should spend more time in the Bible. But I want to submit to you this morning is that you don't need to feel a sense of guilt. What you need to feel more of is a sense of your creatureliness. How can I know better the God who created me, along with everyone and everything? I've encouraged you all in the past in this, and I'm going to say it again. Reconsider your calendar. If your calendar runs your life, it's your God. Almost every time we sit down and talk to another person who we trust, we ask, how, how are you doing? And I suspect that the case is, for many of us in this room, we say, we're busy. Why is that? Maybe it's because we think that slowing down is a sign of weakness. Or maybe because we're afraid that slowing down might rob us of some kind of worth that's generated through our productivity. Or maybe because we're trying to avoid dealing with difficulty in our own lives. Maybe all of those things are true, but I think at the heart of busyness and a calendar that runs our lives is a stubborn refusal to acknowledge that we're creatures created by a creator God. And I have to admit to you, this is the hardest thing for me as a person. Because when God says, be still and know that I'm God, I'm annoyed. Because what I'd rather think is stay busy and think that you're God. It's much easier for me. It's much, much easier for me to just stay busy and believe that I'm in control. If you're saying that's not me, good. 
But really seriously consider if that's a statement of denial this week. And do this with me this week. Pray, God, please show me where I'm trusting my own strength and abilities to generate results and get things done. And when the Holy Spirit makes that evident to you, repent. And be still and know that He is God. So that's the first thing this week is to participate in lesser rest. And we're defining lesser rest as an acknowledgement of our creatureliness. An acknowledgement of our creatureliness, which gives us the ability to be still and to know that God is in fact God. But the second thing that I want to say to you this morning is participate in greater rest. Lesser rest, the acknowledgement of that creatureliness and the way that we structure and the way that we order our lives. The greater rest is what God is inviting us into what we see an invitation to participate in, in the Ten Commandments, God's seventh day completed work. We ultimately rest not in our completed work again, but God's. Again, the work is never done, you get it. God brings about everything that He intends perfectly, however. There is no discrepancy between what is best and God's finished work. There is no discrepancy between what is best and God's finished work. So we ask ourselves, how do we do this? How do we participate in greater rest? I think that it's more than just a thought that we must have. And I think the most practical way that we see in Scripture to participate in greater rest is this. Greater rest is found when the people of God gather to worship God. Now, maybe this environment doesn't seem very restful for you. Maybe you're an extreme introvert. There's a lot of social anxiety that comes in a place like this. Maybe when you gather together with the people of God, you think more about how your hair looks or how the kids misbehave during the morning on the way here. But the reality of finding rest where the people of God gather to worship God is that these are the folks, look around you this morning, these are the folks that you will spend eternity with, gathered together in God's presence, worshiping God. And there's greater rest to be found there because once we're restored to that which God originally intended in creation, once we are brought back into Eden, into new creation, we will find this greater rest together with the people of God as we worship God for all of eternity. So this is what we're doing right now. This is God's greater rest. And here's what I'm saying. Friends, please hear what I'm saying this morning. The Sabbath for ancient Israel was a sacred day. To participate in lesser rest of acknowledging creatureliness, but also to participate in God's greater rest. That which God invites us into. This completion, this wholeness, this fullness, this perfection. And modern evangelicalism has made it all about the individual. But the Sabbath, the invitation to participate in God's rest from His creative work, shows that you're part of something far bigger than just yourself. 
And we must not make the gathering of God's people an activity on the list to be negotiated away when there's a sports game to take in, or a vacation to take, or a flare-up of that social anxiety. That's sacrificing greater rest for lesser rest. Apart from the people of God, you cannot participate in greater rest. There is no example in all of Scripture that would show us that we can participate in the rest that God invites us into, the rest experienced by God in Genesis 2, 1-3, apart from the people of God. I get it. There, it's flu season. We had a blizzard. I get it. But to separate ourselves from this gathering often for social scheduling conflicts or because we're too tired is to ignore God's command to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. So you're asking the question, should Christians observe the Sabbath? And my answer is yes. And I have to flesh this out. I have to qualify this for you. But my answer is yes. And what I mean by yes is this. To set aside one day a week for participating in the greater rest that God has us together when we gather together to worship God as God's people. For Buffalo City Church, that looks like 10 a.m. on Sunday. But also, we should take an entire day to engage in both lesser and greater rest. We don't just go home and sit idly. That's not what we mean by this. But if you're headed to the office today to get a jump start on Monday, you've probably ignored that God blessed the seventh day, as it says in verse 3, and made it holy. If something is holy, it is set apart. And if Sunday looks like every other day, except for this 90 minutes here, then something needs to be adjusted. First, be still and know that He is God. Don't just be still and watch football, but spend time together with your family in God's Word Sing songs together. Eat a meal together. Use the time to encourage fellow, fellow church members by sending a text or making a phone call, pointing others to biblical truth. Or go for a walk or work out or cook a nice meal. And praise God for all of it. Set aside the day and keep it holy. I'm not making a new law. I'm not being legalistic. I'm pointing out to you the grace that God invites you into living in such a way that matches what we claim to be true by coming to church. God is God, and we are not, and He rested on the seventh day. The last thing I want, to say, I want you to see here this morning and say to you this morning is that we participate in that lesser work of, or a lesser rest of acknowledging our creatureliness. We participate in that greater rest of acknowledging and seeing that God is God and that God rested and invites us into that by gathering together to worship together with God's people. But the final thing I want to say is the finished creative work isn't the only finished work of God that we're invited into. Creation's, or creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 is the first movement in history. But then we have the fall in Genesis chapter 3. But before that chapter is over, God initiates another work. He initiates redemption. God's redemptive work in the lives of His people is also finished. 
Jesus declares it to be so when he gave up his spirit on the cross. He says, it is finished. The work was finished. And for ancient Israel, the Sabbath began when the sun went down on Friday. And after declaring that it was finished, Jesus' body went into the tomb and it rested there for the Sabbath. But on Sunday, the tomb was empty. Sunday is the first day of the week, but I think we're meant to see something more here. The number seven indicates completion, but Jesus came back on the eighth day. It's the first day of the week, but it's the eighth day, the next day. And this indicates an even more complete completion, if I can say that. An even more complete completion. Something even more perfect than perfection came about here when Jesus came back and was resurrected. This is why we, the people of God, gather to worship God on Sunday and not on Saturday. We have done so throughout church history. God's resurrection, or Jesus' resurrection, finished God's redemptive work, a more complete completion indicated by the eighth day. And Jesus' resurrection initiates the first day of new creation. God's light breaking into darkness, ultimately promising the restoration of God's original intent in creation. And through Jesus, we can have that rest. That rest that comes to us. The rest that God rested from in creation and then again in redemption. Through Jesus, we can have that rest. I'll leave you this morning by reminding you what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, we come to Jesus as those who gather together to worship God. As God's people, Friends, we're weary and heavy laden people whose work is never finished here in this life. But God invites us to participate in his greater rest, to acknowledge our creatureliness before him. We are heavy laden with our sin. We cannot deal with it no matter how hard we try. And so this morning the admonition is this, run to Jesus, learn from him, and rest. Let's pray.